Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101. So today we have a very special guest, Charlotte Newman, another one of my students and another one of my best and brightest students that I had the opportunity to teach at Cambridge. And we've brought Charlotte on to talk about meditation, especially meditation in the Buddhist tradition and how that potentially interfaces with politics. Now, most people who think about meditation might be thinking about it in terms of one particular experience with it, uh, whether it's through mindfulness or through some depiction of Buddhism in pop culture or uh, Alan Watts or or whoever it is that you might be thinking of. Uh, Oftentimes, because we don't get a whole lot of exposure to Eastern philosophy, we tend to view it all as one thing and to collapse distinctions and variations within traditions. So, Charlotte, Can you give us a little bit of a roadmap? What's the menu of different interpretations of the role of meditation in politics, the shape that meditation might take, and and how we might benefit from it? Hi, yes, absolutely. And thank you very much for having me on. Um, I think particularly with the Buddhist tradition, uh, I mean, it's so vast and there's many different schools of thought. But two that I have particularly uh, found an interest in and, and studied is the Theravada and Mahayana traditions. And it's often maybe assumed, I think, particularly more so in Western culture, that meditation practices are very otherworldly. And it goes back, I think, particularly to Weber and him labeling uh, these religions as otherworldly. And it sort of has continued with this trend. But in actual fact, the Buddha taught that to uh, the Four Noble Truths and the path to the cessation of suffering uh, and enlightenment is very much through living in this world. You're meditating and you are following what is called the Dharma and the way of the Buddha to reach enlightenment, which is ultimately truth and a knowledge of truth of the world as it is. Um, But to do so, that means you have to be in this world. And meditation is a way of focusing the mind And so not being controlled by the emotions, not being swept up alongside them and enveloped in them and acting out of anger or greed, which uh, in the Buddhist tradition are called mental defilements. And there's lots of different variations of uh, meditation. There's mindfulness meditation, uh, vipassana, which is called insight, which looks at truth. And a commonality, I think, particularly in the Buddhist tradition, is it looks for mental clarity and it looks beyond the emotions. So we still are aware of our emotions, but we have a mental clarity to observe them and with the awareness behind them, we're not controlled by them. And then allowing us to look at the world as it is, to look at ourselves as it is, to analyze ourselves and knowledge and truth. And I think there's maybe a misconception that this then means that we're not involved in the world at all. But I think actually meditation can be a key to social change. And there's a really interesting figure in, it's more so in Mahayana traditions called the Bodhisattva. And it's this idea of the Buddha that uh, is close to reaching enlightenment, 
some an individual that is very very close to nirvana but stops and comes back to teach others to teach them meditation to teach others on the path to relieve their own suffering and i think that could be a hugely important political figure in the sense of they could come into the political realm and just as individuals cause suffering i think in today's day and age institutions cause suffering and the engaged buddhism movement that has arisen in america and uh, began with Thich Nhat Hanh, who was a Vietnamese monk who fled the Vietnam War. He got, was persecuted and worked with Martin Luther King. And the Engaged Buddhism movement practices Buddhist truths and the ethics and meditation and the clearing of the mind and the alleviation of suffering and says, well, we do it to ourselves to alleviate our own suffering, recognize suffering in others. And then through doing this, we recognize that these institutions are also causing suffering. And so we have a, a duty to help others who are also suffering, which will mean in turn changing these big political institutions that are inbuilt that are causing suffering to others. Um, I'll stop there if you want <laughs> that sort of a brief brief overview, I think, of of my interest in how I think it could be very much political with the the quietening of the mind, awareness of our thoughts, awareness of impulses, and clarity, and then looking at truth and what is truth, and the cultivation of also compassion and loving kindness and awareness of others and their suffering, because I think that lacks a lot in politics. It's it's very much fear and uh, anger is maybe too strong a word, but fear and defensiveness often. And I think through meditation, a different avenue can be can be viewed. Yeah. So one of the things I've noticed is that the Mahayana tradition tends to be more commonly invoked when we're trying to make a political intervention with Buddhism. Mm. Yes. Is there a particular reason for that in I, your view? I think there is perhaps in the texts that are used, there's... Um, a much more of an emphasis on the loving kindness and compassion and this role of the bodhisattva in giving compassion to others, really cultivating. Um, they've got different names, the four divine abidings, the four abodes, uh, but loving kindness, compa compassion, joy, and equanimity, so seeing others as as your equal, you see yourself in the other person, they are you, you are them. There is no distinction, you are both equal. And these there's an emphasis more so, I think, in the Mahayana tradition, though it's it's in you know, they're all shared, but there's more of an emphasis in the Mahayana with the Bodhisattva role and of others coming to the aid of those that are suffering and, and cultivating in ourselves these abilities to care and show compassion and really not just uh, so Vipassana in, in the Theravada tradition, for example, is very much an inward journey for the individual to look and try and find truth and break down the illusion of non of the self and find this non-self, non-duality, oneness. Um, and that can appear very much more personal journey. It, you know, it doesn't affect other people. Monks go away in the monastery. They they have their path to reach nibbana. 
Whereas in the Mahayana, there is more emphasis on this compassion, cultivation of these abilities within us to think about others and be aware of others' actions, why they're acting, what they're feeling, why they're suffering, and then cultivate this awareness so that we too can then act out of compassion. We're not adding to suffering. We are trying to amend it. We're trying to aid it. Um, and I think that's maybe why it, it comes across, particularly with this, this bodhisattva role of someone coming in to act. They are not disappearing on their own into the trees and not returning. <laughs> it, they are very much coming into the world to help others. That is their role. And I think that's embraced a lot more in the Mahayana tradition. And that's why it's seen as if something is going to be political, that might be the tradition that's more thought of because it's a very active role, the Bodhisattva, to come and help others. Yeah, I've seen a, a few different arguments for why this this variation. Uh, one, of course, suggesting that there's more influence from Greek interactions in the Mahayana. Mm. Uh, because the Mahayana splits off later after the uh, period of Alexander the Great and the rise of the Indo-Greek kingdom, that there may be more interfacing between the Greek and Buddhist traditions in the Mahayana, uh, which interestingly in Greece results in a skeptical tradition that is perhaps more like Theravada. Uh, hmm. And also the fact that Mahayana catches on especially powerfully in China as opposed to India, mm. uh, and there, there being a kind of, and this might be culturally a bit essentialist, but there's a bit of an, uh, an archetype of a Buddhism in India, which is about withdrawing into uh, a hermit lifestyle, and a Buddhism in China, which is interfacing with a Chinese political and philosophical culture that is more pragmatically oriented. Mm. And that therefore, the kind of Buddhism which would have to evolve in a Chinese context would have to be more this-worldly, to be competitive in the philosophical landscape of ancient China. Mm, yes. Uh, yeah, that's, that's very interesting, actually. Um, and I, I, yeah, I agree with you. I think there is definitely that there. And I think another thing I find really interesting with meditation, with it being seen as worldly, is that the goal might be you could perhaps call it otherworldly in that you want to gain this truth, this way of life, the world as it is, finding this truth. But that knowledge, that that cultivation of awareness, of focus, of attention, does alter the individual who is meditating. There's been, in recent decades, countless studies on the brain and grey matter and what occurs in meditators, both novices that do six-week courses and monks that have been practicing for 20 years in a range of different types of Buddhist meditation practices. And the results are astounding in how it affects um, emotional control and memory recall and these other parts of the brain. And I think to say it doesn't do anything, I think ignores the fact that an individual changes when they meditate sort of and look look almost at the unintended consequences maybe as well as the intended ones yes and, and it's certainly not as if meditation is absent in the western tradition in uh, say neoplatonists for example mm. for whom contemplative philosophical activity was quite similar 
to meditation and indeed carried in influences from Indian philosophy and, and spirituality. Uh, with, with this idea of, of revelation in Christian thought, uh, being very close to the Neoplatonic idea of returning to the one from which we emanate. Uh, and this return to the one is supposed to be the result of philosophical activity. Uh, and uh, that, that can be the form of contemplation. Of course, in the West, there's also often more of an emphasis on dialogue or dialectic. And so here's a, here's a question. The role of community and other people in helping someone along on this journey, right? So one of the things that I've noticed Thich Nhat Hanh often emphasizes is the need for a sangha, mm. a community of practitioners, and that if you don't have this community of practitioners, no matter who you are or how far along you are on the path, eventually, he argues, you'll fall off it, that you need this community of practitioners to be able to stick with the practice over time. I think absolutely. It's the Sangha is a very essential part of uh, Buddhism and Buddhist philosophy. And often at the start of prayers um, or different meditation practices, there are the, the triple gem. It's I take refuge in the Sangha, I take refuge in the Dharma, the Buddhist teachings, and I take refuge in the Buddha. And the Sangha is a key component. Uh, because it it is a community. It is there to support both physically when you meditate together in a room together, when monks meditate together, and also then having that community, those ties, having a, a teacher, having a mentor when you are struggling, because meditation is a process and it's it often brings with it obstacles when we are trying to almost train the brain in a way that particularly in the west it's not trained to be like in being observing and aware of thoughts and aware of emotions and stepping back from those things and the sangha is essential in offering that support and having that community in it is incredibly powerful um i myself have been to a few different sessions where in different sanghas where you meditate together as a group and it is different. I can't quite describe to you how you're still sitting there. Um, these were in silence with um, a bell or a gong, but there is something different about when you are meditating together as a community that I think is very powerful and very binding. And that is incredibly uh, in this world. <laughs> and I think has the power to form a community, form connections that could then be spread outwards and have a very impactful social effect. Um, and indeed does in, in sort of uh, Buddhist majority countries. I mean, the Sangha more traditionally is the monkhood and the laity are separate. But with sort of Sanghas that you have appearing in the West and in the US, for example, in the UK, you know, there are there are classes for novices, for people that are monks, and you come together and you have your community. And I think it allows, particularly in a Western context, this other community with this other way of being that is centered very much on understanding ourselves, understanding our own suffering, our thoughts, how we are controlled by our thoughts a lot of the time which is a very stark alternative to sort of mainstream life 
and p- the pace of it in, I think, sort of the Anglosphere. So I think maybe yeah, the anthology is very different. The very. collapsing of self, other distinctions. It's difficult to get your brain to think in a different ontology, to think through different premises of what counts as as having existence or non-existence conceptually. Mm, um, very much so. I think that can be one of the biggest challenges: is this idea of of non-self, but it's not a losing of identity; it's an interconnectedness of everything, and. It, it's an incredibly strange concept if you've never been confronted with it before um, to try and get your head around. And I think the Sangha in that sense can help guide uh, an individual into it and into this way of thinking that is very different from the Anglospheric uh, viewpoint. Yeah. So this is something that I think is especially interesting because if you've got a Sangha, if that's in the theory, now you need a set of external background conditions for the theory to work effectively. And that implies that there have, has to be some kind of political condition mm. for, for this to take root and to be maximally effective. Similar to how Aristotle says that we are political animals, that we need a polis, that we need some kind of city or, or space of political activity. If we say that we need a sangha to really do meditation properly, then we need a particular kind of social and political context for this to really flourish. And that implies mm-hmm. a certain link uh, between the practice that people are doing and the background conditions, not just that the practice could allow people to be politically activated to change background conditions, but that a certain kind of background condition would be necessary as a prerequisite to get the most out of the process. Yes, I I see what you mean. I think particularly, say, for example, trying to bring it into the, the US, it's this difficulty of how do you create those conditions that then allow people to experience these changes? Uh, how do you bring them into the awareness in themselves? And I mean, traditionally in the Theravada majority countries, um, I'm thinking in particular uh, Burma now, and now Myanmar and uh, and Thailand, the the connections traditionally and historically were kings were very intimately connected to the sangha and this Buddhist model of kingship with. Uh, the king supporting the Sangha and having a moral duty to support it. And the Sangha in turn through their uh, their moral worthiness, as it were, from the meditation and the commitment to the Dharma, the teachings, gave legitimacy to that rule, to the king. And the king in turn protected the laity, who in turn gave offerings and supported the Sangha and kept it running. And it was all intimately connected. And it's become much more fractured and difficult now with the way current, I mean, that's a whole other probably discussion with the current politics of of these countries. It's far more complicated now. And I think perhaps maybe if these ideas are being brought into sort of a Western context, a sangha could be, you know, in a classroom and having the group of children or students doing it together. And I think Thich Nhat Hanh talks about that you can have a Sangha form from just having that community that that practices together. It doesn't have to have a, a monk at the head of it. It's, it is a way of bringing 
people together. And I, I understand the difficulty then of, well, how do you do that if the conditions aren't supported by the state? Um, and I'm trying to think of a good way of trying to answer because it's it's a difficult problem. And I think you can go a long way if an individual is meditating. I think you can progress a lot and can understand a lot from an individual practice. And perhaps it'd be maybe trying to find a way of looking at this, of uh, seeing if this has happened. But when you have enough of those people that have started on their journeys that can then come together and form something uh, that wasn't expected. So, I mean, Jack Cornfield and, and Joseph Goldstein went to India and practiced meditation in the 70s and monasteries and then came to the US and set up their own meditation centers. And Kabat-Zinn actually then created what is now very much known today as sort of mindfulness, and he stripped the teachings of the, the terminology of Buddhism. And so he stripped the words Dharma and uh, Nibbana from it. But he still talked about compassion and interconnectedness and understanding and suffering. So he kept these ideas, he just as he said, took away the terminology that made it perhaps frightening to the American. <laughs> and I think maybe that's an interesting way to create something within a social field that is not used to that way of thinking and that way of being, is slightly altering the terminology and way of understanding so that it's, ac it's accessible and it's not depriving the teaching but it is framing it in a way that it is allowed to then enter that that atmosphere and that environment. Yeah, it sounds like a lot in this argument turns on how high the bar is for the background conditions. How much background condition do we need? Mm. And I, so it seems that everyone agrees that there has to be some level of, of community or social support or, or people you can turn to for help along the way. There's got to be some level of that. But yes. you, know, you could go on, on the one hand, people could say you have to have actual trained monks running it. And on the other hand, people could say it doesn't even need to have the language uh, and terminology and concepts. Of, of Buddhism, provided that it's multiple people trying to do it together in a shared space. Uh, that, that seems to me to be a, a really pivotal argument, because depending on how high that bar is, it radically changes how we think and feel about these different traditions, right? Mm. So some people look at mindfulness and go, okay, well, this is making it more accessible without watering it down to the point where it can no longer have the transformative effect. And other people worry that because it's been so watered down, it no longer has the transformative effect and just becomes a way of getting people to continue to go to work. Mm. I mean, I think absolutely. And, and one aspect that I found very interesting uh, when I've uh, looked at it is the sort of Foucauldian concept of biopolitics and that actually in, say, corporate programs of mindfulness, in the way it is presented in sort of corporate retreats or wellness days for staff, the intention might be good, but perhaps it is just a 10-minute breathing exercise that is beneficial to the company as it allows 
their staff to relax a bit more. But there isn't a wider teaching. And that's a great relaxing tool. But it is stripped of the wider meaning and feeds into still the narrative of value is productivity and the individual's worth is to be productive. And without it, they have no value. Whereas meditation, particularly in the Zen tradition, is and I'm trying to remember, there's an excellent article I read, and I'm devastated, I can't remember the name of the writer, and I'm hoping it will come to me, uh, who compared this with uh, Zen meditation, sort of, they, they phrased it good for nothing, in that it is done for itself, it is an end in itself, it's not for something else, whereas these corporate mindfulness programs are for the, uh, the end of still being productive. And I think when that happens, it's so far removed from the Buddhist teachings that it's not really recognizable anymore. And the understanding isn't there that actually meditation is an end in itself. It is an awareness of who we are as human beings, an awareness of truth, of understanding that in these programs, I think, can be lost when they are so stripped back and actually just continue to feed into the sort of uh, neoliberal model of productivity. Yeah, and I, I could imagine a situation where nonetheless, even though the intention behind the supporters of the Sangha is to increase productivity or to legitimate the state, nonetheless, a kind of environment is created which has some kind of emancipatory potential. But those corporate retreats don't seem to quite fit that. I could, however, imagine in the case of, say, the uh, kingdoms in Southeast Asia, that the sanghas that those kings were supporting might have uh, more substance behind them, even if the king's motivation in supporting them might just be the securing of legitimacy. Mm. Absolutely. The, the sanghas in, in, I think, particularly in sort of uh, the Theravada majority countries are uh, what I've recently done my dissertation on, so I can say a little bit more, more about them. Um, but the Sangha held that legitimacy because it carried on the teachings of the Dharma, of the Buddha. And the laity looked up to the Sangha and the Sangha almost held more moral authority than the king at times. And so the king had to work with the Sangha or attempt to control it in a way that still showed them as supporting uh, the Dharma and the truth. And that's right. Mm, yeah, sorry. <laughs> well, well, just and so even if the king is entirely political in the way that the king is thinking about it and is totally just looking for legitimacy, just looking to stay in power, maybe doesn't even believe in any real sense. Nonetheless, because the king's legitimacy comes to depend on the sangha, the sangha gets a lot of influence over the king's behavior. Mm, I think I think that could be argued. I mean, in particularly, say for example, Thailand, the king has to be Buddhist and commit to to Buddhism. Uh, I mean, it'd be very difficult to theorize, you know, look historically at whether kings were cynical in their beliefs or not. And I'm sure a lot of them did believe in the the Dharma and and this um, Sasana was this cycle of, of rebirths and that the king had a role in being able to give to the people in order to increase their chances and their well-being uh, so they wouldn't continue to be reborn in in these these endless cycles, and nibbana is is the end of of this cycle of rebirth. You're not reborn 
uh, when you reach nirvana because you have reached enlightenment and truth. And I think it's also very powerful in that and there's some interesting cases of, say, with uh, Vipassana meditation in, in uh, Burma, for example. And Vipassana was traditionally very much just practiced by monks in sight meditation, looking at truth and understanding of uh, the world as it is, the universe as it is, understanding pure truth of everything. And it was very much reserved just for monks. And the laity were not involved at all. Whereas actually then in post-1950s, it began through Mahasi Sayadaw. Um, apologies if I've not quite said his name correctly. Uh, there was a democratization of meditation. Um, and Ingrid York wrote a fantastic book about this, looking at the mass lay meditation movement and meditation being practiced by the laity, by ordinary people. And I think that must have a big consequences politically because it is changing the values of who understands truth where then sort of legitimacy comes from who understands how things should be the fact power dynamics shift with who has this power to be able to understand and and shifting then also who is able to have that knowledge it is no longer just the elite yes the monkhood always retains that higher morality because they are so dedicated and they take more precepts. But meditation has become wider. It's, it is practiced by more people. It is democratized. And so it's like, what does that pave the way for? It's democratization of this process. Could it lead to the democratization of other things as well? I think is an interesting, interesting question. Yeah. And that yeah. might not be something that they would have anticipated or intended when originally yes. they were mm. getting support from the state. Exactly. And so oftentimes when the state supports stuff, uh, that stuff can potentially grow and develop in ways that the state might not anticipate from the beginning. And so what appears to be a legitimation mechanic for the state and nothing more than that could develop into something different. Uh, and so I think a lot of the time people have a kind of zero-sum view on on uh, institutions or religions or practices or traditions that have a relationship to the state where either they're hostile to the state or they are sycophantic with the state. Mm. But most of the time, there's a push and pull in which both the tradition and the state are trying to use each other. Absolutely. I think, I think there is always, it's always changing, I, I believe. And Buddhist, the Buddhist tradition has been continuing for thousands of years uh, and has evolved in many ways and has spread and there's so many different variations in Tibetan Buddhism and in Japan with the Zen Buddhism there's many different variations um, and each has had its own interaction with states and with the states that they're in or with states wanting to uh, you know with communist regimes coming in and wanting to crush religion but then them resurfacing and surviving and then wanting and then new states wanting to use them again for legitimation um and then also coming into the west with these ideas and these concepts that are quite alien to a certain extent in the anglosphere i think 
particularly with these ideas of interconnectedness and of everything having an effect. You know, and karma, I think, is a word that's been very misconstrued, I think, probably in sort of movies and, and TV shows in the Western world and this idea of karma. But it really is just cause and effect, this idea. And what we do has a consequence. And so our actions are very important and what we do, how we act. And meditation allows us to have an awareness of our thoughts, which in turn means we have an awareness of how we act. So we don't act rashly and we don't, in theory, we don't, you know, we don't, don't act without thinking. Uh, we have an awareness. And I think in a Western context, you know, these ideas coming in are very alien to both individuals and the state as a way of being and interconnectedness for certain, I think is starting to become a concept that is challenging the status quo of particularly, I think, in the Anglosphere of individuality and everything is for the individual and me and my and, and what I need, what I want. And far more emphasis on community, on interconnectedness, on my actions having consequences on others, the suffering that is caused or the suffering that I inflict on myself. And with, I think, the climate crisis and climate change, those concepts will become much more apparent and will need to be uh, sort of taken into account a lot more seriously than I think maybe they are at present in uh, Anglospheric politics uh, when talking about climate change and that looking to these Eastern traditions and, and also indigenous uh, indigenous uh, religions and, and cultures as well, a lot of them have the, these concepts of interconnectedness that I think could have profound change, but they're also a, a very big challenge to this status quo of individuality, I think, that Western states are essentially sort of modern states in particular built on. Yeah, I think that's a very uh, powerful contribution. You think about the right recently, a lot of young people on the right have gotten very interested in stoicism, and stoicism includes the emphasis on controlling the emotions. But stoicism argues contra Aristotle that this can be done by anyone with sufficient virtue. And that virtue is something that anyone can cultivate regardless of the background conditions. And so the right's response is, well, if you're having trouble, if you're having difficulty, uh, just control yourself. Just take control, take responsibility for your, your feelings and the way that you're dealing with them. Uh, and I think this is a much deeper contribution because it's not just saying let's, let's uh, watch how we're feeling and how that's motivating us to behave. But let's also look at how those feelings and those behaviors come out of a larger system of causation that is not just reducible to ourselves as as responsibilized individuals. Edmund, you've been quiet to this point. <laughs> what have you been thinking about for the last thirty five minutes? Yeah, I yeah, I definitely agree um, with the arguments that um, uh, Charlotte that you've made about Buddhism being. Um, an alternative to uh, more individual-centered philosophies, uh, like in the modern world, um, and the argument that you've made, Benjamin, about the importance of the sankha, 
and of community in underpinning all of this. And I guess one um, one point that I've been thinking about is the way in which this community or state support for um, meditation and Buddhism is generated and the extent to which this is actually quite, I think, similar to so-called Western traditions of um, religion and political thought. I mean, for instance, um, Christianity was spread uh, in large part thanks to Constantine's um, lifting on of the ban on uh, Christianity after the crisis of the third century um, and Emperor Theodosius's declaration in the later in the later fourth century that Christianity was a, was a state religion of Rome. And this was done by these emperors in order to uh, try to restore a unity that the Roman Empire had lost in the third century. And I guess one comparison I want to make is between this and the way in which Buddhism spread, for instance, through the emperor uh, Ashoka's um, spread of um, Buddhism, the, Ashoka being the, th- the third emperor of the Mauryan dynasty, mm. who, who reigned from 268 to 232 BCE. And he, um, he made Buddhism the, um, the religion um, of, the, um, of the empire after he slaughtered um, a couple of hundred thousand people in the Kalingan War. And um, K- um, Kalinga being um, in the uh, area of Odisha in eastern India um, today. And he did this because he regretted the amount of destruction that went on in the war. But I don't think he um, he uh, ceded the territories that he'd conquered. He kept these territories. And uh, there's an extent to which, and this has been made um, quite often uh, in political thought, um, for instance, by Karl Marx, that religion is a flower on the chain of exploitation. Or at the very least, um, for instance, for Max Weber, that Religion is, um, you know, Weber doesn't use this as an argument against religion, but simply as a kind of sceptical realist point that uh, religion is used as a legitimation story for uh, for power, uh, not just, say, economic power in the modern age, in the corporate uh, uses or misconstruals of, of, of these religions, but also, um, um, also through warfare and the way in which state power can be defended by this. Um, and I guess uh, I guess I want to say that uh, on this podcast in previous episodes, we've noted how um, often what we take to be moral arguments are in fact just ways of justifying configurations of state and class power. So state power formed by warfare or, or class power formed by formed by trade. And um, I, I wonder whether um, Buddhism is a deviation from this rule or an example of this rule, and uh, it's not to say that this, you know, that Buddhism isn't, or that ancient ideas like in uh, Plato, in, in both Western and Eastern um, political thought in the ancient world, you know, we clearly have a vision of what politics could be that is very different from what it is today. And perhaps there are lots of merits to this vision, but I wonder whether in both the ancient and the modern world, uh, what we call religious or moral arguments are often just expressions of uh, power. Of both the state and the class structure, um, and we see that. I mean, yeah, and we see this, for instance, in the um, 
in in the modern world um, too. And I guess I want to say one other thing, which is um, uh, Max Weber uh, also made the argument that um, Protestant sects um, in the early stages of uh, capitalism um, practiced a form of um, this worldly asceticism. And um, we talked about uh, asceticism earlier on in this um, episode, asceticism being something that's kind of common to Buddhism and Jainism to some degree. And, I, and one contrast that I thought was quite interesting was the contrast between, I think it was uh, uh, Theravada um, Buddhism. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, between a Theravada monastic mm. Buddhism um, in Southeast Asia and the Mahayana tradition, which is more popular in China, which is, I think you noted, Charlotte, is more this worldly. And I want to draw a comparison between Mahayana Buddhism and Protestantism, because for Weber, um, Weber made an argument um, uh, that in, in the early stages of um, the modern world, um, Weber says, quote, the otherworldly asceticism came to an end. The stern religious characters who had previously gone into monasteries had now to practice their religion in the life of the world. Thus, Sebastian Frank was correct in summing up the spirit of the Reformation in the words, you think you have escaped from the monastery, but everyone must now be a monk throughout life. And uh, for Weber, um, the spirit of... Uh, capitalism arose from a, a certain kind of spread of uh, kind of monastic otherworldly asceticism into, I, 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 into uh, economic life um, and I, I, into vocations beyond the monastery. And uh, I wonder whether, I mean, is this an argument that you think um, holds any water, the notion that both, both the capitalist and the um, both the capitalistic and the meditative lives involve a certain asceticism, a certain kind of resistance to luxuries and attachments. Mm. Uh, I mean, of course, the dif the difference is that in is that uh, this changes over time for, for Weber because what begins as a kind of a moral substantive commitment changes into a merely instrumental economic commitment. Um, right. And so yes. perhaps the means might be similar, that the asceticism or austerity might be similar, the kind of self-restraint, self-discipline might be similar, but the ends to which it's, it is directed is, is, perhaps, is perhaps different. Yes, I, th I think that's really interesting, actually. Uh, and an angle I'd not uh, quite examined with uh, that similarity. I think fundamentally, the reason why it is still there is a difference is because I think at the basis of capitalism is the desire for more. You're creating things, the need for more, and particularly in modern capitalism, it, satisfi it satisfies needs, it satisfies wants, and has run away with itself in constantly creating more and more and more and exponential growth. Whereas the core teachings of the Buddha, which are in any tradition of Buddhism, are the Four Noble Truths. And that is the 
realization of suffering and the truth of suffering is that craving desire causes suffering and so that when and the the path to the cessation of suffering is to break attachments with those cravings and desires and i think you could argue that is in essence very anti capitalist and anti consumerist because yes you can still uh, consume things and uh still you know i mean a monastic will take it to the extreme of having very simple meals and just you know to sustain but ordinary uh you know individuals that meditate will enjoy a nice meal out and will enjoy things but they will the idea of meditation is that we break this attachment to desire to craving the the need to fulfill something within us to make us feel whole to make us feel who we are as an individual our identity and i think that's where there is a complete separation is that with the the idea of this capitalist model and i think it has evolved into a consumerist model of the need to have things to make us who we are to create an identity and a social identity beyond an individual identity of who i am who we are based on what we consume whereas in in buddhism that is what causes suffering because nothing can ever fill this void when it's we are constantly thinking we need things it's it's sort of an an unattainable desire because it's constantly being replaced and we need new things to feel happy and feel fulfilled and by breaking that attachment the idea that we are enough as we are is going against that consumerist model because we don't need that new phone we don't need that new car uh we don't have attachments in the same way attachments are what causes suffering once we understand that and can break those attachments we can find peace and we can begin the path to enlightenment and understanding and that concept is meditation is the act of of non-attachment of being aware of our thoughts and that our thought is thinking oh i need this to be happy being aware of that and looking at why do i think i need that and that is a very different way of thinking i think and it's present in the mahayana tradition and even though they've both got that aestheticism I think in the way it has developed in the west into consumerism the buddhist tradition of meditation is an antithesis to consumerism in one respect it when practiced along the the true teachings and I think you know in that sense any religion within a different states and different environments can be used to certain ends and means I think that happens in all religions and I think it happens in buddhism as well uh but i think the teachings of when uh we meditate is is different i think there is a contrast because it is again it is about non-attachment to these worldly things that we think we need uh so they don't have a power over us anymore we we hold that in ourselves yeah mm. there's an old expression idols idle hands are the devil's playthings <laughs> well that that doesn't fit very neatly with meditation <laughs> it might fit with with uh working a whole lot and not uh 
spending a whole lot of time being not productive. And I think mm. there, there's a little bit more harmony there between that and the eventual direction uh, which Protestantism in the United States developed in, uh, which is so much about uh, feeling guilty or bad if you are not being useful or productive. Yes. Uh, I do think that, that to, to Edmund's point, you could argue that some of these strands of mindfulness in the West, insofar as they've dropped a lot of the potentially subversive and radical ideas in the Buddhist tradition, might be more like those, more like that kind of Protestantism. But in the case of the Mahayana, the Mahayana comes along well before any kind of capitalism permeates into the East. Yes, I mean, absolutely. Sorry, yeah. Edmund, carry on. Okay. All I was going to say was um, Benjamin Constant made the argument that the modern world is characterized by a pursuit of um, economic liberty and the yes. ancient world characterized by uh, a pursuit of a kind of um, public liberty, uh, but made possible by interstate warfare. Uh, and so uh, economic discipline might be the spirit of uh, of capitalism, but military discipline is characteristic of um, a lot of ancient city-states. And I'm wondering if um, maybe if Protestantism is associated with a kind of economic discipline, then maybe um, Buddhism is associated um, with a kind of military discipline in terms of the states in which Buddhism has been embedded and in which may maybe, maybe the difference we're dealing with here is trade being the, the main selective pressure of the modern world and warfare being the main selective pressure of these ancient religions, and so what we're referring to is simply a difference of selective selective pressures. I think that's very interesting. I mean, I won't try and pretend that I can aptly summarise the entire histories of the conflicts and wars that have happened uh, in Southeast Asia and in, and in Buddhist states, because I'm only just on the start of a hopefully a long journey <laughs> of research in, in those areas. But Particularly historically, wars that happened were protection of uh, the Buddhist uh, state. They were seen as the protection for the protection of Buddhism from from external attack. And what about was, Myanmar today? Sorry. No, no, absolutely. So Myanmar today is incredibly complicated. Uh, you had British rule. Uh, in colonial periods that uh, essentially, you know, they got rid of the king and uh, completely took over administrative tasks and pushed aside the Sangha and its relationship. And then the monkhood, there was, uh, I think in the 1910s, 20s, did uh, sort of form political movements and then the laity. And you got independence. Um in, I believe, 1948. And you did have democracy for a few years. And Unu, the, uh, I want to say president, uh, I think that was his title, uh, maybe prime minister, he wanted to work on this model of of, of Buddhism, of, of moral goodness, and the path to enlightenment, and that as a society, they can build upon these principles and meditate. And he, he often went and meditated. And sadly, it didn't work. And there was uh, military rule then came in and there'd been subsequent military yuntas uh, from then. And you've just started to have uh, some form of democracy. I mean, I don't think you'd call it proper democracy in the sense of very free and open elections. The military still has power in parliament with the number of seats it had. And now, obviously, very recently, 
uh, a coup against the National League of Democracy Party that had won a landslide with Aung San Suu Kyi uh, and are now taken back control. And some of the reasons they gave before is that if you're going into a much wider context of that uh, democracy becomes corrupt, I think was the argument, morally corrupt. And so they use their platform as a way of trying to uh, legitimize what they're doing. But equally, it's not been truly, they've not just used Buddhism, I mean, for a period um, with uh, Ne Win. They tried, I think, I want to say the late 70s. I might be wrong. They might have been into the 80s. They uh, attempted the social uh, socialization of uh, Burma with uh, socialism, socialist Burma. And uh, they tried to eradicate sort of the importance of Buddhism and the Sangha. And the people essentially uh, didn't let that happen. They continued to practice and uh, meditate and go to the sangha and to the monks, and so the military junta had to change tack in how they could exert control, and then tried to purify the sangha and exert control that way. And I think it is used. I don't want to make any big sweeping gestures because it's it it's so complicated a history and so complicated a political climate. And I think this is where I was coming again with that religions are used. I think in in many contexts and in many ways with political powers, but that there is tension within even Sanghas. Uh, you know, in 2007, you had the Saffron Riots and the monkhood came out. Uh, thousands of monks protested. Well, they uh, they walked, as when I say protest, they, they uh, walked the streets um, in, in protest against the the food shortages and the economic crisis that was affecting the laity and everyone else in the country and, and came out to support the people. And that was incredibly powerful. And the military then attacked them and clamped down even harder. But there was a split within even the Sangha um, with what the monks had done. And they traditionally within the country are not political. Yet here they were doing something which I think most people would probably call very political, a protest. And it's this idea of not confining, I think, conceptions. And I think perhaps it's maybe too simplistic to say it wholly relied on military, because there was a lot of trade. It's just that the they were more mandala states, I think, was the phrasing of how kingdoms worked. They didn't have straight and clear-cut boundaries between kingdoms. They sort of grew and shrunk, like sort of breathing or <laughs> organisms almost with per- uh, the peripheries. And there was trade, but I think the the focus was much more embedded on this idea of of a moral life of of moral good um, yeah. within within that tradition and and living according to the Dharma. Um, I think that was the the attempts anyway from from just yeah. what I've read so far. A lot seems to be characterized by things not going the way that people anticipate them to go. <laughs> when the state and religion interface, mm, things often yes. develop in directions that neither side necessarily expects when they get into that relationship. Like when Edmund brought up Ashoka, right? The Mauryan Empire forms in large part because of these incursions from 
the Greeks and the formation of the Indo-Greek kingdom and the threat that that poses to many of the Indian states. And that's one of the pressures which causes that state to form, right? Now, once the Mauryan Empire forms and it attaches itself to Buddhism, that leads to a lot of interaction between the Greeks and the Indians along Buddhist lines. Yes. Right? And that creates new versions of Buddhism, like the Mahayana, which then go to China, a completely different place that none of these people were thinking about. And then in China, it develops into the Zen tradition and into lots of other, other permutations. And those, you know, that goes mm. to Japan. And then those things come over to the United States. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of evolution that occurs that is difficult to predict when you set up the relationship. And oftentimes for a state religion relationship to be functional, it only has to be functional from the point of view of the person who's setting it up. So if you're Ashoka, then yeah, by adopting Buddhism, you created some legitimacy for your conquest of India, and that worked for you. And by the time Ashoka was dead, he didn't experience any kind of blowback or difficulty from that. But the process of uh, of evolution unleashed by the state adoption of Buddhism, created a lot of different kinds of Buddhism, which are potentially more subversive than the original kind, which Ashoka attached himself to and, and sponsored. I think perhaps sometimes it is attempted to look at religion as this clear-cut area of study and then to combine it with the political, and that they are distinct spheres even. And I think perhaps a more interesting way of looking at it is, well, where is the boundary? You know, how much are actually in different situations and different evolutions that they are combined a lot more than perhaps in, you know, England or America, where there is a much clearer uh, separation, uh, a much more obvious distinction between, say, religion. It has been much more clearly, I think, a sad, very aptly sums it up of sort of the state has defined what religion is and it has created it. Whereas Buddhism in itself even can then question that as, you know, it, it doesn't have a, it's not got a God in the sense the Buddha was not a God. So some argue it's not even sort of a religion in that traditional sense of how it's been termed. It is a philosophy. Then um, it's how do you define religion and all these ways of it evolving and interactions and the unexpectedness of it and where it could go next, um, I think is fascinating. And, and I think it's hard to predict, but the power of these practices, I don't think should be ignored. And the numbers that I think is going to be particularly interesting in sort of the Western, uh, sort of in America and the United Kingdom, seeing what happens with more and more people meditating. And more and more people understanding and and being aware of these teachings and this this way of thinking that has been around in Southeast Asia for for centuries, uh, and w what will happen from that? Where where will that lead? Uh, I think is a is a very interesting way to think about it. And obviously, we can't know for certain, but I think it's going to have a lot of unintended consequences, perhaps. Are there things that come out of religion and not just the state, the way in which the state interfaces with religion, but kind of religion itself that can be, um, can be problematic. Um, so I guess, for instance, uh, the way in which the genocide of the, uh, Rohingya, um, today is, uh, legitimated by the, um, 
Burmese state is um, because Myanmar is a majority Buddhist country and the Rohingya uh, are in a Muslim minority. And um, I, I'm now thinking about how Ashoka, even after converting to um, Buddhism, is reported to have um, um, ordered pogroms against um, followers of Jainism. And I, I'm now thinking about how in, in Christianity, um, the ways in which uh, Christianity has interfaced with Islam and mm. Judaism in conflictual ways. Yes. Um, and, and the ways in which the pursuit of, I mean, and I'm, I'm kind of wondering whether there is a, uh, so as well as the Western Eastern distinction, whether there is this notion of, um, as Carl Jaspers put it, axial age religions. Um, and these axial age religions from, I mean, the dates are disputed, but you know, from something like 500 BCE, perhaps 300 BCE um, onwards. Um, and so which might include the Abrahamic religions, which might include um, um, the spread of um, Buddhism, perhaps perhaps Hinduism too. Um, and these axial age religions arose uh, in large part um, because of um, rising social complexity. Um, and it was rising social complexity that preceded these religions, according to a recent article in Nature by White House et al., um, uh, 2019. Uh, and, and one of the reasons why you get rising social complexity is because of intensifying warfare between states and trade um, 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 among states. So um, I, I, I guess, not, not to be too cynical, but is there an extent to which <laughs> yes, yes. We, we're not mm. really, ref that, that, that there's, as well as important, you know, I completely agree that there is a massive difference between the emphasis on uh, the individual uh, in, in the modern world and more ancient perspectives on the whole and on unity and interconnect interconnectedness, as you've noted, Charlotte, uh, I, I think that's, of course, incredibly important. But I, I'm also wondering the extent to which these moral ideas can be used uh, as a way of justifying um, uh, basically structures of domination and exploitation. Yes, absolutely. I think I think this is the thing with when, when we look at, at vast religions that have many complexities and just in the way that the Vatican and the Catholic Church had different campaigns and different uh, ways of exerting control for their own ends and used you know Christian teaching so that has also happened in Buddhism and so with the Rohingya crisis for example I mean this that stems from if you're going to go really far back to the British colonial rule and the splitting of these sort of uh, systems and labelling of different uh, ethnic minority groups and the sort of uh, isolation that was felt by uh, Burmans and this idea of a Burman Buddhist was sort of in, not invented but gained prominence as a way of independence. And then from that, the, the military state then created these recognised ethnic minority groups and the Rohingya was not part of it. And it has then been hijacked, maybe too strong a word, but uh, 
nationalism has become tied into Buddhism uh, for certain political actors and has become very powerful, I think, in the way that, you know, nationalism in, in lots of countries, even in here in Britain, and this idea of the other and that has become very powerful. And I mean, the fact that they're supporting, you know, that uh, those killings, if you look at the Buddha's teachings, you know, the five precepts are do not, you know, do not harm, do not kill and respect for right. all life and so it's that thing of but you could argue also that is in christianity too of you know not harming <laughs> not harming but, another uh, yeah i'm wondering however whether i mean for, for instance if we take christianity that, that there's a similar uh, a similar uh, ethic of you know of of um of um not committing uh, uh not committing violence and loving your enemy. Um, but as we can see uh, from early Christianity um, and Christianity since then, I mean, say the Crusades, that yes, often yes, exactly. this, th th this theory is not put into practice. And I wonder whether there's an extent to which with, with, um, with religions and philosophies that preach uh, nonviolence and that pre preach a kind of transcendence of power relations, that this is actually something that is this idea can be easily adopted by states because it's a way of denying and obscuring power relations i like guess when we say you know no power or uh, no violence no coercion um of course those aren't the same thing um that this can actually be a way of justifying power and that the denial well, of power justifies I, power I and think, enhances it i think i think charlotte made a, a powerful point though about how difficult this ontology of interconnectedness is for people to grasp. Yes. And I think it, a similar point would be made by a lot of Christian theologians that what it, real Christianity is, is quite difficult to grasp, uh, especially if you're introduced to Christianity in a kind of dogmatist way by a Absolutely. set of institutions which have a motivation to try to get you to feel a particular way. And mm -hmm. I think the same would likely apply to Buddhism. Yes, absolutely. That these these doctrines are, are uh, powerfully good doctrines, but because it is difficult to grasp them in, in their totality, it is very easy to set up false versions of these things, yeah. which seem to be offering some kind of moral awakening, but which are actually being used to dogmatically manufacture division and dualism. And uh, the, the point was made about others. Others, that's not Buddhism. Buddhism is collapsing of duality. Exactly. Uh, self, other, us, them. That's there is, not, that's there not is the no idea. other, but... <laughs> now, I think the difficult thing that comes out of this is that because it seems to be so easy for religions, even religions which explicitly say don't think in terms of self-other distinctions, to be weaponized for the purpose of creating self-other distinctions, mm. what that suggests is that the set of background conditions for religion to really work and to really produce better behavior are maybe a little bit more demanding yeah. than we tend to acknowledge. Uh, but don't Absolutely. those background conditions themselves require power, violence, coercion? I, I guess, say, for Plato, Callipolis comes out of warfare. It comes out of the state expanding through warfare, and philosophy is only made possible by the um, conquering of new territory and the, the, the creation of, through the division of labor, of uh, a time for some people, but not everyone, to have, to, to have philosophy. 
and uh, and the state is maintained by a producer class which does trade and an auxiliary class which defends the state through yes, warfare. Yes, yes. Well, well, this is why the state mm. and religion and the state and philosophy can't be viewed as poles in a duality, but have in, to be viewed yes. as something which are enmeshed and which have to grow together. I think one of maybe perhaps an interesting just uh, extra perspective is the Buddha never tried to just uh, tell people this is this is how things are, this is how you should think, this is how you should see the world. He gave people the tools and told them, go and discover for yourself. I'm not going to make you believe that this is truth, that there is non-self, that this is an illusion, that everything is interconnected in this oneness, the self is an illusion. He said, go and meditate, focus the mind, bring awareness, and go and discover for yourself. It's, And I think in that sense, it's very different from, say, Christianity, uh, though I, I'm, I'm not an expert, so I won't, I won't claim if there is some part of it. Uh, with you know, what it, it, difference does very... it make in practice? Do you think in politics? Sorry for interrupting. I think maybe just in terms of perhaps maybe when you're talking about power structures, maybe Buddhism in itself could be. And I think the engaged Buddhism movement that is in America is is showing it can be very much grassroots from people from individuals that come together and through this awareness and journey themselves change and it's a change that means that external forces don't hold as much power over them and you know there's several uh i mean ang sang suki is a very difficult and controversial figure now obviously with her position over the rohingya but in the 90s when she was in house arrest and in prison for the democracy movements uh, and many other political leaders also that that were attempting for democracy uh they would meditate when they were in prison and i think that could be argued to be a very political act because the prison guards and the system did not hold a power over them. They retained within themselves these actions that they could carry out uh, mm. to find truth and a way of being that that could not be touched almost, if that makes sense. And I think that's quite powerful and is maybe a way in which you don't necessarily maybe perhaps need the state power from on top. It could rise up from the ground up, perhaps. Just me. Well, thinking this out reminds loud. me of a lot of <laughs> of ideas to do with interfacing between freedom and the state, and a lot of the debate about how does the state create freedom? How does the state create a space in which mm. the right kind of Buddhism can form, rather than creating a dogmatic version of Buddhism, which is a tool for it to uh, uh, legitimate itself in a very straightforward way? And states which draw on freedom in some way as part of their legitimation criteria and say, we make you free, we create spaces for freedom. States that are doing that because they've made a commitment to freedom as a, as a criterion, to some degree can't be as heavy-handed in the way they then shape those spaces and the kinds of things which emerge from those spaces. Mm. And because they can't be as heavy-handed, there's potential for these spaces to get away from them a little bit or to produce things that are not necessarily what they would intend. Absolutely. Mm. I think I think I'd agree with that. And and in in that respect, the sanghas uh in these uh Theravadan Buddhist majority countries 
Obviously, there have been times where the state has managed to impose a lot of control and they've purified the Sangha and expelled monks that they believed weren't teaching true Orthodox Buddhism and appointed the head abbot. And there's lots of ways in which they are very much intertwined and controlling. But in a, another point, they they are autonomous bodies to a certain extent and through certain periods of time more so than others and have that freedom in the fact that they practice the Dharma and practice this commitment and meditate. And through their meditation, they they are afforded this higher morality and are viewed as having this moral quality by the laity. And so have a have a status over the laity that respects them and that they hold this higher moral authority. And it's very difficult to take that away when it is so integral to the autonomy of of the institution. Yeah. Maybe the idea yeah. of the middle way can also be used to help mm. um, us understand. Because I'm thinking now that maybe um, the, 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 the notion of the middle way is somewhat similar to Aristotle's idea of the golden mean, because mm. uh, I guess the commonality is balance. And balance, maybe absolutely. The, maybe the problem with how I've been framing things this episode is this kind of opposition between imminent uh, processes of war and trade and transcendent values of unity and um, uh, and um, uh, the interconnectedness of all things and maybe kind of balance is a is a middle way between these between these extremes of survival on the one hand and goodness on the other hand um, yeah maybe we can through balancing different desires create the space that, that Benjamin talks about for you know that kind of space relatively free from uh, f- from productivity uh, and so that we can develop uh, as Charlotte has been emphasizing a kind of uh, meditative philosophy that isn't it isn't about uh, productivity and maximizing profits but that instead is about um uh, about being at peace with the unity of all things well i mm. i think that edmund absolutely you, you haven't been wrong to emphasize the role of states and power relationships and trade and constructing religions i think that however it is it is that doesn't mean that just because religions come out of those processes that they can only be more of those things. They can potentially generate other kinds of stuff that might not be what's expected mm-hmm. or what would straightforwardly appear to us in a short time frame to be what would come out of those processes. Now, I think it matters a great deal what the background conditions are for how a religion evolves. So, for instance, I made this point about if freedom is in your legitimation criteria, that might force you to allow religions to evolve in ways which you might have prohibited or been able to prohibit if you had a state which didn't lean on the concept of freedom in the same way or to the same degree, right? So the fact that Buddhism is coming into countries and to contexts where freedom is playing a larger role or democracy is playing a larger role in the legitimation mechanics of the state potentially creates space for Buddhism to develop in ways that it might not have been able to develop in other places, Right. Mm. And further to that, you know, so then the question is, will Buddhism be able to be this force for interconnectedness in the West and be this way of resisting atomization and self-other distinctions in the West? Or will it get appropriated by capitalism and transformed into 
something that doesn't have any kind of of rigor to it and which is just a means of of coping or self-care so that people can return to work. And I think this is an is an unanswered question because we haven't seen how Buddhism is going to play out in the states. We see different strands of it in the states which potentially look differently mm. to one another, some which give us hope about the first and others which make us fear the second. And I think this is really the pivotal question. In these Western states where Buddhism is is has been making slow progress for the last only 50 or 60 years, you know, really not a very long period no, of time. No, not long at all. Is it going to take this engaged mm. Buddhist route and is it going to become a means of challenging those self-other distinctions or is it going to get turned into an instrument of productivity? I mean, I'm... I'm hoping I'm going to sound optimistic because I think I am an optimist. And I hope that it will be the former, that I'm thinking and I'm hoping that it's reaching a point where many people, I think, in, in the US and you know the UK are unhappy. They, they feel this unsatisfactoriness. And, and that's actually a more accurate translation of Dukkha which is often translated as suffering. But unsatisfactoriness is another translation. And this this not contentness. And I don't think that's going to go away. And I think the fact now we have this climate crisis coming upon us, I think might go hand in hand with being a pivotal turning point. It's almost going to force upon perhaps the US a confrontation of these ideas far sooner than if we didn't have the climate crisis and we didn't have this confrontation of ways of being that are not sustainable, that can't continue. It sort of has thrown it into a much starker light. And I'm optimistic and hope that more and more people I feel are are looking at and, and delving into these other ideas. And it's certainly, you know, not majority by any means and not even close yet. But Every person that does is is one more person that that sees the world in a slightly different way, and I, I want to say a better way because I think if you do understand this idea of interconnectedness, you you care more, you care more for others and yourself because everything connected and has effects, and the world as a whole becomes sort of more tangible. And, and real almost, I think, and, and you can understand it better and and how the, the need to look after it and, and work with nature and others. And so I'm going to be optimistic and, and hope, but equally we don't know. And I think it will probably be playing out, particularly in the next 30 or so years uh, with this climate crisis as well. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see, see, see how it does uh, when it's confronted with these these crises. What do you think specifically that Buddhism and meditation can tell us about how politics should respond to these crises? What well, what specifically does politics have to do to adapt to, kind of respond to these I think these wisdoms? politics could, I think the politics of deep listening could be incorporated far more. So deep listening in Buddhism is the concept of listening to understand, to gain understanding. And I think a lot of the time politicians just listen to respond. So they don't really actually listen to what the other side is saying whatsoever. They just wait until they finish talking or not even until they finish talking and then shout over them until one side wins. And I think recognizing this distinction of, I mean, in a grand scheme, if we're going theoretically, 
if a realization of that there is no other, there is no self and other because it is an illusion, we are all one, well, then how could you have war? How could you go and, and fight someone? I mean, obviously, you'll have defense of people who then don't don't understand this and will attack so then the the argument of water to defend but you know internally with or implementing policies that will cause people harm like austerity and and other means that are causing the population harm if there is a recognition that this is causing suffering this con- compassion i think i don't think there's much compassion in politics i think that's maybe Another turning point, if there was more compassion, then I think you would have policies that would be centred around aiding others and allowing them to be happier, which in turn would probably mean they work better as well if they would, you know, if the state would also like that. But I think things would just function better if you have that care and compassion. Uh, I think politics would be a radically different landscape uh, with more compassion in it. An understanding. Yeah, especially if you look at the Anglosphere over the last 40 or 50 years, mm, so much absolutely. of what has happened is that this idea of individual responsibility has permeated everything. Absolutely, And yes. become a justification for denying people things they need, denying people care, denying people concern, exactly. forcing people into lifestyles that are very atomizing. Absolutely. Uh, e- exactly. I think that's the, the really powerfully radical idea here is that there is no self-other distinction. And then if you get beyond that into... Uh, you know, there's no distinction between human humans and and the ecosystem. Yes. That to a large degree, humans are are just the rational or or contemplative part of the ecosystem. Uh, and how odd it is for one part of the ecosystem to be in using uh, disharmony and... with with the other part, mm. or to be instrumentalizing the other part rather than to be thinking in terms of uh, the good of the whole. Uh, some of those ideas, I think, are are powerful and interesting. It really comes down to whether we get in a position where the level of the word that I I would use is resentment, but I think it's a quite similar word to what what Charlotte was using for this feeling of things just not being right, yes, not being okay, uh, not being satisfying, and you know, looking at concepts and ideas that can help us get out of uh, some of this 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 suffering that so much of it in just the last five years has been brought on by this intense, in, in my country, the United States, mm. intense ramping up of culture war divisions yes. between social conservatives and progressive liberals and intense uh, friend-enemy distinctions, Schmidtian thinking, intense self-other stuff. And I found that in this period, I've been more drawn to some of these ancient ideas of of unity as a consequence of just how far away from all of that we we have come in recent years and it's been noticeable there's been it's gotten worse and people are talking about it even people who are coming out of mainstream liberal traditions writing about polarization there's this awareness that there's too much division too much division yes uh, and i think whether this takes on a very radical form or even just a mildly reforming uh even if it were just mildly reforming, getting back to this idea that there is some level of community, that there is some level of interconnectedness, that we can't just break everything up into bits and bobs, that would be generative even from within a liberal capitalist point of view, if if taken up. Yes, it would be it would be transformative. It really would if it was if it was properly taken up and and understood. 
uh, yeah, I think it would be tra- massively transformative for the and, better. And, and, yeah, and I guess as well as the this idea of the uh, the the unity of all things, the interconnectedness of all things in in, in Buddhism and ancient thought more more generally, um, there's this idea of of balance. Yes. And perhaps perhaps what we've Having lost balance. in the modern world is not just yeah we, we, it's not just unity but also also balance that though i i think that though ancient thought does emphasize unity and balance there's an extent to which this was hard to put into practice then um and that we we have this ancient philosophy because um i mean for instance in in in, in ancient um Greece, the philosopher class existed on the back of a of a slave class, um, whereas in, in the modern world, perhaps the degree to which everyone is forced to engage in economic labour uh, means that it is of one sort or another means that it is harder to have the have the time to acknowledge the importance of 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 unity and of unity and balance. But I, I think even there's an extent to which this wasn't necessarily something that was even widely put into the practice in, in the ancient world, and mm. that not not everyone could really Cause have because it, it couldn't be. We didn't have the kinds of of economic or political systems to do that yes. in antiquity. And yet, despite that, oftentimes on the show we talk about interesting ideas that come out of Plato or Aristotle that gesture at unity, that gesture at balancing. And we, of course, recognize and discuss all of the horrible things that went on in in Greco-Roman societies while these ideas were percolating. But we nonetheless go, well, maybe these ideas can, in a different context, with different political institutions, different economic institutions, different situations, maybe they can develop in a more generative direction. Institutionally, maybe there's a respect in which division and imbalance in the modern world has created through competition high levels of technological development, which could be used to potentially uh, create balance and unity in political practice. But if this is possible, it will have been made possible um, by the technology which arises tragically from the division and imbalance of the modern system. I think that could only technology is great and I think is incredibly useful but I think unless there is the social change and recognition that we are out of balance their technology will just continue to fuel the unbalance I think it's and the there's an excellent writer on the climate crises that I read recently and saying you can't have science solve a social problem and the root of climate change is a social one of how we live, how we interact, how we view the world. And I think technology, yes, could be the answer in allowing us to have that balance again and and find it, you know, and, and have balance. But there has to be a recognition that we are in unbalance. I think, first of all, there has to be the recognition that we are not balanced, that we are being pulled to the extremes, because unless there is, it will be continue to be used to to fuel that division and imbalance. Yeah, that's really the question about industrialization: is will it unlock potential for kinds of societies which can take ancient concepts and practice them in a more rigorous and consistent and developed way, or will technology produce its own logics which instrumentalize yes. human beings and their values and ultimately destroy mm-hmm. those things? 
That that is really the big question about whether we're optimistic or pessimistic about yes. <laughs> the future of modernity and industrialization and and all of that. Uh, and I think that we we are often willing to entertain the possibility that ancient Western ideas might be generative, but we're often more hesitant when it comes to Eastern ideas because those Eastern ideas tend to get put in the box of yes. religion, and that means they get compared to Christianity instead of Neoplatonism or uh, Aristotle. Mm, absolutely. Or any of that other stuff. Uh, th there's a little bit of a category barrier and, and a duality that is set up in the Western mind between these things in the respectable philosophy box and the less respectable religion box. Uh, and that's a duality that we should really deconstruct because especially in antiquity, all of this stuff is, is interacting and all of this stuff is combining in new ways. Mm. And there's uh, just as much causation eastward as as there is westward, uh, Buddhism and, and Greek philosophy become so intertwined and so many of the traditions which we associate with Western philosophy have heavy, heavy yeah. Eastern influence. I think Maybe absolutely there. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go on, Edmund. No, no, you, you go. You go. I, just gonna, I was going to absolutely agree. And that having this duality and, and having these divisions that are in the analysis of when we try and confront these problems is limiting us in being able to, because we confine things to different spheres and being able to break down those subliminal divisions that we have and being able to look at it in a new light and how things are interconnected will allow us to, to have new perspectives and, and hopefully find new yeah. solutions. Maybe meditation is the key to all this because, um, uh, in a way, so Plato made the argument that uh, for, 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 for us to have balance and unity in politics, at least on some level, the philosophers must become kings or the kings become philosophers. And perhaps in modern language, that means philosophers becoming politicians or politicians becoming philosophers. Um, and um, perhaps uh, we could make a, so perhaps an equivalent statement could be made uh, via Buddhism, that for balancing these two to be restored, meditators must become politicians or politicians uh, meditate. Um, because um, uh, just as philosophy is a concern perhaps for the th a theoretical appreciation of unity, um, perhaps meditation is a practical instantiation of, of unity. Because while philosophy is trying to appeal uh, through thought to the unity of all things. Meditation is being at peace with the body as well as the mind. And perhaps Absolutely. when we put the two together, uh, and perhaps they were together already in, uh, in ancient thought, but perhaps today we have to put them together ourselves because they've been artificially separated. What, what, you know, Meditation and philosophy together can help to... Can help to restore um, balance and unity balance. to political. I think that's a fantastic they, idea. They were definitely together. They were definitely together. Really, when you, you if you use the word contemplation, mm. which is a broader term in the Western mind than meditation, you'll see that that's been all over the place from the beginning. And that I mean, there's some level of do we try to do this through dialogue or dialectic? or through meditation and what the emphasis is on talking to other people and spending time alone in thought. Um, 
but that certainly both of those practices are there in both the East and the West from the beginning. Absolutely. We just kind of have to tear down that boundary a little bit, and then we can start to think about this stuff uh, in a more holistic way. Yes, I, I agree. I think tearing down that boundary and bringing them together, I think will aid, would, yeah, would, would create these new ways of thinking and would aid in the present day a, a new way of, of coming at politics and, and how to solve the political problems and suffering and dilemmas that, that we have today. Uh, I think it's a fantastic idea, Edmund. <laughs> yeah, so I think we're hard. We're, yeah. we're about at an hour and a half, guys. Ooh. So I think that mm. we probably yes, we probably have reached our natural natural finishing up. Nice, point. nice, optimistic yeah. finishing yeah. point. Yeah, yeah it, it I seem- think we closed on a nice note there. Yeah, it seems uh, so- very hard to bring this stuff into practice, but perhaps it is. Perhaps it is worth a worth a I try. I think it's worth a try, uh, as you've sh- shown so well, Charlotte. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yes, I think it's hard, but I think definitely worth the try. Yeah, you know, we, we don't know whether the conditions we're under are the conditions that will just turn everything into a, a means of augmenting production. If that's the case, then there's not much point to doing anything. Uh, we just have to hope that there is still enough potential in the situation we're in that something might be done. We have to start with yeah. that as a premise. If we accept that everything will just get turned into a way of increasing productivity, I mean, that might well be true. But if it's true, then then politics is over and we're in a whole different period where uh, automated processes that are indifferent to human needs just run the show. Yeah. The possibility perhaps is enough. It doesn't need to be the case that things will turn out well or, or, or that it's even likely that meditation and philosophy will uh, be put into political practice, but that it's possible. It's possible, and that yes. perhaps hope Absolutely. rests on that po- yeah, Yes. Yeah. And think about what kinds of conditions we would need for it and what we would have to do to bring those conditions mm. about uh, insofar as the conditions are not already straightforwardly prevailing. Uh, so thank you guys thank you so much. much. Thank you, Charlotte, so much for coming on. I think this was yeah. very, very generative. No, thank you very thank much. Thank you very much, Charlotte. Thank you. I've, I've really enjoyed and, being on. Yeah. And thank you, listener, so much for listening. Of course, if you want to support the podcast, you can. Patreon.com slash Political Theory 101, all lowercase, no space. Thanks so much for listening and have a brilliant rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.